from WBUR Boston and Slate. Hello, and welcome to The Checkup, our bi-weekly podcast of health news you and your family can use. I'm Rachel Zimmerman, co-host of WBUR's Common Health blog and a former healthcare reporter for The Wall Street Journal. And I'm Carrie Goldberg, also co-host of the Common Health blog and a former Boston bureau chief of The New York Times. And we're calling today's episode On the Brain, as in... We have brains on the brain. (laughs) Because the brain is, well, Pink Floyd said it best. It's all that you touch, all that you see, all that you taste, all you feel, all that you do, and all that you say, and all that you eat, and everyone you meet. In other words, the brain is pretty much everything we experience. And you could say that right at this moment, my brain is talking to your brain. (laughs) And my brain is saying, whoa, that's trippy. So yes, we all have one. And maybe the most incredible thing about the human brain is that it's the only organ that tries to understand itself. Wow. I wish I made that up. But here's something that MIT neuroengineer Ed Boyden did tell me personally that truly did blow my mind. Human brains are really large. If you were to map an entire human brain with reasonable resolution, um, I was just estimating this, but Mm -hmm. if you were to store that on hard drives and you stack all the hard drives one on top of the other, that stack of hard drives might reach into outer space. Whoa, I don't know if I can get my brain around that. (laughs) Well, while you try, I can say that later in this podcast, we'll be talking about the newly discovered benefits to the brain of playing music and recent advances in predicting dyslexia, even in kids who can't read yet. But first, something deeply futuristic. Really? More futuristic than hard drives reaching into outer space? Well, you judge. The Defense Department is funding researchers to develop a brain implant to treat severe depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. Wow, a brain implant as in mind control? Well, the tinfoil hat contingent might call it mind control, but what it's actually about is trying to use electrical stimulation to treat really severe disease that drugs can't make a dent in. Like the kind of emotional abyss that a Boston woman, Liz Murphy, fell into. She was just 31. She had a great job in public relations, and then one day, It all just fell apart. It's like she fell apart, and she just walked out of her job. It was a Tuesday, and I remember the day so clearly, the sun, everything, and I walked out. It was about 11 o'clock, left my bag, my shoes, just walked out, never went back. I have a hard time believing it's depression in a way because it was so pervasive and powerful, and it happened so fast, and it was just so degrading. And Liz barely left her house for years except to see her psychiatrist. And she tried everything from talk therapy to meds to electroshock. But it's like nothing could break through this sort of horrible darkness that had hit her. Finally, her psychiatrist told her about an experimental operation to use what's called deep brain stimulation. It's used a lot in Parkinson's disease patients, but this was several years ago and it was brand new for depression. Liz told me she actually hoped she'd die on the table during the operation. Wow. But she didn't. Quite the opposite. She had the surgery. She was actually our first patient. And she was like a miracle. She went into complete remission. You know, we couldn't continue with the study because on the average it failed. But for those people in whom it worked, boy, did it work. 
That's Dr. Ahmad Eskandar, the Mass General Hospital surgeon who operated on Liz. Now, Eskandar and a team of other researchers are undertaking something even more ambitious with funding from DARPA, the Defense Department's research agency. The basic goal of the project is to develop a fairly small, miniaturized implant about the size of a matchbox that has electrodes that can detect patterns of activity that are associated with certain neuropsychiatric conditions like post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, substance abuse, anxiety disorder. And when it detects those patterns, it then delivers stimulation to try and remedy that pattern of activity and restore it to something more, more normal. That's the basic idea. So it's basically trying to correct your brain activity in real time to stop the depression from coming before it really takes hold. Exactly. And to do that, you have to learn how to separate signal from noise in the incredibly complex firing patterns of our neurons, that stack of hard drives reaching to outer space that Ed Boyden talked about. Eskandar says that could be the biggest challenge. So the first part of the process is getting neural data. That's a lot of data, actually. It piles up really fast. You have to figure out a way to extract the useful data quickly and then figure out the solution in real time and then deliver stimulation. I think the hardest part is going to be finding a reliable neural signature of these various things. Is there an actual trace, something that I can reliably say, yes, when I see this, it means the person is having an attack and PTSD or they're feeling very depressed, that is probably going to be the single hardest part. So the other hard part is like, all right, even if you did figure out the signature, how can you reliably mitigate it by stimulation? Like, you know, and what's going to work and what's not? And how are you going to know if it's working or it's not working? So it's not any sort of a slam dunk, but it will certainly be a chance to learn a great deal about trying to fix the brain when it goes tragically wrong. Dr. Eskandar is really careful to manage expectations about this project because depression and PTSD can cause so much suffering. And he wants to be clear that this is still really just research. You know, we're so tantalizingly close, but it is very, very ambitious. And so I I don't want people to think that, oh, yeah, we're like one step away from this. This is a long road to hoe. So now let's talk about something that's been a problem for kids and families for a very long time. But now it seems some actual progress is being made. Great. What is it? Dyslexia, a brain-based learning disorder that makes reading very tough. So dyslexia, it's the flipped letters. Like what comes to mind is the agnostic dyslexic guy lying in bed wondering if there's a dog. Actually, Carrie, it's a little more complicated than that. Yes. Yes. I would be chased down the hallway. And the teachers would just watch. And this one boy, he's like, you should know how to read by now. You're in seventh grade. So yeah, it was not very... I talked with these teenage girls at a school for kids with reading disorders, and they described in painful detail the teasing they endured. And they also talked about some of the tactics they employed to hide their dyslexia. I would be like, oh, I just lost my place, and then I would skip that word, and hopefully no one would realize and call me on it. So I used to just, like, mumble over the word or, like, say it really quietly and pretend like I said it. (laughs) Until recently, and even today, kids who struggle to read were thought to lack motivation or smarts. That is not true. Dyslexia comes from physiological differences in the brain's circuitry. 
Nadine Gobb is a neuropsychologist at Boston Children's Hospital. She studies the brains of infants as young as four months old, and she theorizes that even at birth or shortly after, children's brain structures can show signs of developing dyslexia. Wow, that's incredibly early. Yeah, and her hope is this research will trickle down to classrooms and help eliminate what she calls the dyslexia paradox. Several studies have suggested that intervention is most effective in kindergarten or first grade. So we have this paradox here because you have to have several years of reading failure before you can get a diagnosis of dyslexia. The end of second grade, beginning of third grade. So by the time you get the diagnosis, you already feel like a failure. Remember Ryder, that character on Glee? I do. I love. He Glee. wasn't diagnosed till high school. Oh, yeah, it was his like deep secret. It's not a brain tumor, is it? No. I'm dyslexic. Dude, you learn to read when you're six. That's first grade. And they separate you into these levels. They don't tell you that's what they're doing. But everyone knows who's in the smart group and who's in the dumb one. So the work that's going on is a collaboration between neuroscientists at MIT and Children's Hospital in Boston. And this new research shows that it's possible to pick up some of the signs of dyslexia in the brain even before the kids learn to read. Well, how do you do that? So using the latest MRI technology, these researchers were able to pinpoint a specific neural pathway in the brain's left hemisphere that appears to be related to dyslexia. And it's called, ready? Ready. The arcuate fasciculus. The arcuate fasciculus. Didn't even know I had one of those. Yes, just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Anyway, so in the children who had weak pre-reading scores, meaning they were possibly on the pathway toward developing dyslexia, that region was smaller and less well-organized compared to the kids with strong pre-reading scores. So a real correlation between reading and this brain structure. Right. These brain measures taken in kindergartners, again, even before they'd learned to read, can significantly improve predictions of how well or poorly the children can master reading later on. Here's MIT neuroscientist John Gabrielli. Maybe the most surprising aspect of the research so far is how clear a signal we see in the brains of children who are likely to go on to be poor readers. The bigger challenges for us now soon will be to figure out what kind of interventions can be done in a four-year-old or a three-year-old that might put her or him on a different pathway altogether. You know, can we have a child arrive at school who will be ready to read and not wait for failure at all but have intervened so early that the child never experiences that failure at all? So, Rachel, is it happening? Are schools or preschools going to start testing children for a predisposition to dyslexia? Wait, wait, wait. Not so fast. Schools just immediately jumping into a new process for testing kids? No, that never happens. No, schools never do anything fast. Right. But when Nadine Gobb went to recruit children for this study, she approached several school administrators, and she told me that she was extremely surprised to learn that not all schools wanted to participate in this study of kindergartners' brains. When we started these studies, we approached a lot of school districts throughout New England. And some of these schools were really open and happy that we want to come and test every incoming kindergartner. However, we also had districts who said, I'm sorry, but we don't want you anywhere close to us because if... MIT and Harvard diagnoses or identifies children at risk in kindergarten, it will not help us at all because we won't have the money to do any kind of um, intervention and parents will get really upset with us and we would feel very guilty as well. 
Rachel, it sounds like one of those classic cases where the science is moving forward, but it can take the public policy a lot longer to catch up. And hopefully they will. You'd think, as a parent at least, and also as a teacher, you'd want to know this early so you could try to fix it. Yeah, the earlier the better. Okay, let's talk about something that we can all do right now. Enhance our brains with music. Okay, I'm all for any form of brain enhancement, but uh, how? Well, if you're a devotee of YouTube or cheesy late-night cable TV, you might have run across something like this. This audio contains powerful brainwave entrainment technology. Do not listen to brainwave entrainment whilst driving or operating any dangerous machinery. This audio is only recommended for persons 18 years and older. Woo, entraining my brainwave. Um, what are they selling there? Don't you remember Mozart makes you smarter? Oh, yes, yes. In fact, I remember feeling compelled to play loud classical music at my pregnant tummy. Now, remind me, where did that idea come from? Well, in 1993, a study of college students showed them performing better on spatial reasoning tests right after they listened to a Mozart sonata. That led to claims that listening to Mozart temporarily increases your IQ, and ever since, there's been a raft of musical products that supposedly benefit the brain. And I believe many of them targeted at parents of young children. Absolutely. In 1998, the governor of Georgia actually announced that he wanted to give a CD of classical music to every newborn in his state. Very generous. But let's do the reality check now. I mean, can just sitting around listening to music of any sort actually make you smarter? Well, our producer, George Hicks, wanted to look into this. So he spoke with Annie Patel, who's a professor of psychology at Tufts University and the author of Music, Language, and the Brain. I mean, I'm sure listening to music has beneficial effects for all of us, but the idea that short-term listening to music improves your intelligence in any lasting way does not seem to be a viable idea. On the other hand, there's now a growing body of work that suggests that actually learning to play a musical instrument does have impacts on other abilities, including speech perception, the ability to understand emotions in the voice, the ability to handle multiple tasks simultaneously outside of the musical domain. This is an exciting new line of research because it's combining cognitive science and neuroscience and answering basic questions as well as having implications for the role of music in the lives of young children and what it does to them. So it's not so much listening to music as playing it yourself that's good for the brain. Right. And some of the latest research on this comes from Nadine Gab, the neuropsychologist we heard from earlier talking about dyslexia. She and her colleagues at Boston Children's Hospital are looking for connections between musical training and language development. And they found a connection in both children and adults between learning to play an instrument and improved executive function. So executive functioning, that's the part of the brain that manages things like planning, problem solving, switching between tasks, focus, that kind of thing. That's right. So the researchers gave complex executive functioning tasks to musically trained and untrained children and adults while scanning their brains in MRI machines. And what did they find? Well, Nadine Gobb said that her study showed that musically trained children and professional adult musicians have better executive functioning skills compared to their peers 
who don't play a musical instrument. Hmm, better executive functioning sounds good, but does that mean that being good at music makes for better executive functioning or vice versa? Well, Nadine said it's most likely the musical training that improves the executive functioning skills. Okay, but then I want to know, why would acquiring musical skills influence language and other higher brain functions? Well, Annie Patel has developed a whole theory to explain this, and he calls it the opera hypothesis. <laughs> Very musical. Let's hear him explain it. The basic idea is that music is not an island in the brain cut off from other things, that there is overlap, that's the O of opera, between the networks that process music and the networks that are involved in language, memory, attention, and so forth. The P in opera is precision. To really process music well, we have to do it with a high degree of precision. So this idea that music places higher demands on some of the same shared networks that we use for other abilities allows the music to actually enhance those networks and those abilities benefit. And the last three components of opera, the ERA, are emotion, repetition, and attention. These are factors that are known to promote what's called brain plasticity, the, the changing of the brain structure as a function of experience. Okay, so the message I'm getting is we should spend less time listening to Lady Gaga and Tony Bennett and Slayer and, yes, even Mozart, and instead we should bust out the flutophones and kazoos and start wailing. It could only help, right? Uh, depends who you're listening to. <laughs> One, two, G major, here you go. Well, before I run to take my daughter to her piano lesson, join us next time when The Checkup presents Grossology. Grossology? And how gross are we talking? Amazingly gross and potentially beneficial. Stuff like fecal transplants, letting your kids get really, really dirty, and... The vaginal schmear. The vaginal schmear, like a bagel with a smear of cream cheese. Barf out! Gag me with a spoon! <laughs> Let's just say, The Checkup is produced at WBUR, Boston's NPR news station, by George Hicks, who also composed and performed our theme music. The executive editor of WBUR Podcasts is Iris Adler. Andy Bowers and Joel Meyer run Slate Podcasts. I'm Carrie Goldberg. And I'm Rachel Zimmerman. See you next time. See you, Rachel. See you, Carrie.